Hey everybody, this is Kim Blackwell and Louis Extravaganza and this is Work, Work, the podcast. Voices for the voices that go unheard. Hey everybody, my name is Louis Camacho along here with my beautiful co-host Kim Blackwell. Hi. And Kim, I recently, not too long ago, went to Hawaii on vacation. Oh, for real? Yes, and I did something that I have not done in a really long time, shamefully. I read a book. Ah. (laughs) And I read this fantastic novel by this author called Abdi Naziman. An actual read, like pages, not audio book. No, read. No, read a book, like physical book, turning pages, enthralled in this book. It was called Like a Love Story, and... I just, I don't know, I just fell in love with the book. I get a call from my friend Jonathan Aubrey. Shout out to Jonathan. And he was like, hey, my husband just wrote a book. It's called Like a Love Story. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> You're like, the, that's the book. That's the book. That's the book. The only book I read in the last. <laughs> you ain't lying. Decade. In the last decade. <laughs> shamefully, I should be reading more books as should everybody be reading books? But we have him today on the show. Super excited. Yes. Welcome, Abdi. How are you today? Hi. I'm so good. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. I'm so honored to be the only book you've read in a decade. Yes. Shamefully, again, I have not read a book in a really, really long time. I have a lot of friends who do audio books. Do you do audio books, Kim? No, I read. I like the pages turning I, I yeah I read quite a bit I'm happy now because my daughter's nine so I can read again because I just didn't have <gasps> my kids are time. eight. oh yeah we, yeah okay so we got to get into all that yes <laughs> oh, yeah oh yeah we will talk about that twins yeah, twins oh. yeah yeah a boy and a girl Goodness. and they love to read too they do good mine they too love to read which makes me so happy yeah and a lot of times I'll just be like, I'm going to read my book and you guys are going to read your books. And we just sit there and we read and it's the best. I love it. And I'm so uh, hyped. to. Look, I'm like that. trying to force her on my favorites. But I'm like, okay, let me just take my time. She's super into Dork Diaries right now. Oh, interesting. Which I'm like, okay. But I'm like, can we get into Tales of a Fourth Grade? Nothing. Can we, you know. <laughs> Mine are all Archie comics all the time. Really? Which was my obsession when I was a kid. I loved Archie comics. And... I got them, I was at a bookstore one day and I was like, oh, maybe I'll get them an Archie. Like when I was a kid, they were so repulsed by them. They, <laughs> they put them outside their room, like we, they rejected my gift. And then I'm like, you know what? I'm putting them on your bookshelf. You don't have to read them. The next morning I woke up and both of them were like, more Archies, more Archies, more Archies. Aww. And now it's just piles of them. They Isn't can't the, get enough. The best when they get into your stuff. Oh, it's so great. Yeah. She's, well, yeah. When they get into stuff from your childhood. It's the it's, best. It, it is. Because you feel such a sense of connection and yeah. it's like you're looking at a version of totally. what you went through. It's oh, it's very deep. <laughs> My daughter's crazy into I Love Lucy. <gasps> Really? Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Yeah. So I'm like, <laughs> oh my god. I know. She's so young. Wow. It's oh, I love Lucy. Knows like, them, but that's not no by that's heart. Like, yeah, I know a lot of kids who are into that. I mean, it's amazing the things that my kids, my kids love pop music too, just like I did. Right. I mean, they are obsessed with. I mean, you should see that the way that they interact with music is incredible. But like old but, school, like pop music that you were into, or I mean, or yeah. the new stuff. No, they're obsessed with Madonna. Oh, they are. Well, yeah, I mean, we yeah, yes. obsessed. Uh, we're they write her notes. They well, I mean, they're they obsessed have, with Madonna because 
Well, because of me. I mean, because I was obsessed <laughs> with Madonna. But you know, like I told them, I'm like, the first time I saw her live was when I was their age, was when I was eight. And it makes so much sense, you know. But it's not just her. I mean, there's other ones that they love. They do love some of the new ones. They're very into a... There's a French singer named Aya Nakamura, who everybody should listen to. She's amazing. Okay. Um, she, and they love her. They love Dua Lipa right now. Okay, so your kids are like super cool. And hip. They're pretty <laughs> yeah. hip. Oh, yeah. They're pretty very hip. hip. And they love writing notes to their favorite uh, musicians. And That's then sweet. They make me put the notes on Instagram. That's yeah. sweet. Like, Ad- adorbs. Yes. Yes, it's because once the first, once I put a note that he wrote that my son wrote to Camila Cabello yeah. on Twitter, yep. and I guess she liked it, which caused this flurry. It went all viral, <laughs> and the next morning I'm like, "Rumi, like your your picture for Camila Cabello was seen by I can't remember how many thousands of people." And ever since then, it's like we're gonna write a note to Madonna. We're gonna. I'm like, oh, Madonna's yeah. not gonna respond. <laughs> I'm just telling you now. You never know. You never know. Yeah. Well, there's a story behind the Madonna connection and you and the dancers of that famed tour. Which tour are we talking about? Wait, wait, wait. Oh, God, it's a podcast, so I'm going to do something really horrible. For all of you who are listening, as we speak, I am going to reveal to Lewis my ticket for the Blonde Ambition Tour. I wow in I Nice, <laughs> Nice Stade de l'Ouest, fifth <gasps> of August. I mean, come on! And that's my train ticket to go to Nice to see it. Yeah. Oh my God! Yeah, isn't that crazy? That's incredible. Look, it's like right. And by the way, I and am mind not, you, our producer has and, gotten up off his chair, <laughs> <laughs> so that gives you a little insight into David, our producer, who is also. A Madonna fan, and he does not want to admit it, but he is one. Oh, look at this. Isn't that wild? That is so cool. That is wow. Yeah. And I'm not somebody who keeps concert tickets. I don't have yeah. a lot. And so I just felt like when I was coming here, I'm like, I have to bring this. It's one of the few things I actually kept because it was such a momentous experience for me i mean it really was a i'm sure i know people have said this too a right. lot because i've seen strike a pose and right and i speak to other Thank people you. of my generation who all right. were changed by that era Thank but you. um but you were how old then uh blonde ambition tour i was 13 oh my god so was 14. i <laughs> <laughs> but i haven't even have we talked about the whole experience that i had no we're in about France? to talk about it right now oh, we have a lot to talk about yes so um, you were 13. I was 13 when I saw it in New York. So I saw it twice. Well, you saw it in New York at 13 and then in And then in, in France nice. at 14. Oh, how schmancy. There you go. I saw the blonde image toward two different ages. Wow. Yeah. And, and two different countries. In two different countries. Well, yeah, because I lived in New York, but my grandmother lived in France. And so we would spend the summers there. And the summer that, I don't know how long you guys were there, but the tour was closing in Nice. Yeah. I know way too much about your life in 1989 <laughs> and 1990. <laughs> Let me just warn you now. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, you know, on August 1st, you were here. No. Yeah, it was like, I, uh, it was? <laughs> but do you actually, this is just, I'm just going to be very our scattered. Our but, listeners are like, oh, now I know why Lewis invited him on the show. <laughs> yeah, because I'm just going to gush effusively. But no, you no, know no. what's so funny is my book, um, my book is is about three teenagers who get involved in ACT UP AIDS activism in New York City in 1989 and 1990. And it touches on a lot of things that are important to me of that era, obviously one of them being Madonna. But the most important thing to me was that I get the the ACT UP 
history right. And so I had two members of ACT UP read the book for accuracy before it was published. Oh, awesome. And it's so funny because I was so, I, I was really just researching everything in such detail in terms of these protests that I was going to depict. And one of the guys from ACT UP who read the book was like, he was he was saying how I had gotten almost all of the history right. And then he was like, but I just need you to know that Madonna actually didn't perform in Landover, Maryland on that exact date. It was like one week earlier. And I thought it was amazing <laughs> that this ACT UP activist took it upon himself to tell me that the date was wrong. Because wow. it is. It's one of the few things in the novel that is not accurate. I shifted the date in order to include the tour in the book. Yes. Because if it weren't for that, I couldn't have had the characters attend. I mean, it only... It just had to happen. Only a week off. I think it's only a week off. Yeah. I just find that to be so fabulous. And, you know, it was part... It was something that, of course, I connected with in the book. God, I just... I don't know, fell in love with the book. But back to 14-year-old oh, right. Abdi so, in Nice so going for, to this so show. 14-year-old you... Abdi is, is is also, just to give you some context, from a relatively conservative Iranian culture. I mean, yes. back, especially back then. I mean, my parents and community have come a long way. But back then, we had no... We really had no word for gay, to be honest, let alone any concept for it. So even though I loved Madonna and even though I knew all the words of Vogue and had watched the video, I still didn't have a conception of how to verbalize, you know, my sexuality or identity. I had no examples of it. Um, And where were you growing up? uh, I moved so I was born in Iran. And then when I was two, we moved to Paris. When I was seven, we moved to Toronto. And when I was 10, we moved to New York. So, so much like the character in the book. Yeah, kind of. very yeah. similar. I mean, one of the characters in the book very much mirrors my life experience in many, many ways. And um, so lo and behold, you know, sheltered 14-year-old Abdi is staying in a hotel in Cannes at that point. My grandmother was in Nice. We were there. And you guys were all staying across from me. <laughs> all of you. <laughs> all the dancers and Nikki and Donna were in the rooms across from me and my brother and my cousins are you kidding i'm not kidding so we share i mean you don't know this This is why i'm saying i know so much about your life back then we and i don't know how long you were there but it was definitely longer than what would be a normal tour stop maybe because it was the last stop on the tour well we were filming there too, and you were filming and and you were all there and the amazing thing is we used to travel persians are very tribal we travel in packs so we didn't go you know, for vacation with like just me and my parents. It was cousins and aunts and uncles and (laughs) friends and, you know, honorary aunts and uncles. And so we were, there were just this big group of us and there were this big group of you. And we were this very conservative, you know, Middle Eastern group. And you guys would be in the lobby in your underwear. Yes. In your tidy whiteies. (laughs) You would be dancing. Yes, Jose had an outfit and it was like sparkling white tidy whiteys but he wore two pairs so it wouldn't be see-through yeah <clears throat> so you know he okay. wasn't he wasn't okay. being lewd but well but just but, you know, slightly scandalous well the hotel was not L- more than it. slightly let me tell <laughs> yeah. you yeah the hotel was not ha- <laughs> having it they weren't all. Uh-uh. really <laughs> nope wow so you remember this he almost didn't get out of the hotel looking like that <laughs> you're kidding yes they were like uh monsieur <laughs> Absolutely not. And he was like, bitch, please. I'm out. I'll see you Well, later. yeah, because you guys were, I mean, but just the aura. I mean, you know, especially because I had already seen it in New York. So I knew 
what you were creating and then to suddenly see you guys just like hanging out in the lobby being brave you know brave or bold or confident enough to be in your underwear in this environment (laughs) I mean it was so incredible and then well there's so many stories from that summer but um I mean one is that the, the reason I got to go see it again because I mean my parents had already taken me in New York I think they were done especially since they attended the New York show with me. <laughs> right, we've seen they were like, quite enough. Right? They were like, you know what? I think they were done. But um, but two of your crew members, not not the dancers or Nikki or Donna, I can't remember. They were straight men, that much I remember. Um, Gabe, we were talking to them, me and a bunch of my female cousins. And this is this is going to seem really, really silly, but all of the girls had a crush on Slam. Yes. who we had no idea was gay um, because we didn't understand what being gay really was. Yeah, absolutely. And so we were talking to yeah, one of the, the crew members. The movie hadn't come out yet, obviously. The movie hadn't yeah. come out yet, exactly. Because <laughs> right. it wasn't until Truth or Dare came out, which is why that kiss was so powerful and yeah. why the gay pride parade was so powerful. Right. I mean, all of those conversations in the film because it it made it so overt in mm-hmm. a way that, you know, before that so much of the culture was hidden. You had to kind of know how to read between the lines. Right. But... um the crew members ended up giving us four tickets and it was after a long conversation, which all the Persian girls were telling him how they were in love with slam. Wow. And the crew member, I remember this so well said, I mean, I, I can't do it, but in a very fey, you know, lispy voice said, Oh, you mean slam or Salim? I think he said like, at, you know, indicating mm-hmm. he was gay. And I remember that being this very, uh, I don't know. It was a very big moment in my childhood because I thought that slam was like the heartthrob that all my, female cousins and friends was in love with and then to suddenly know that like he was and also he looked iranian i mean it turns out yes. i think he's mm-hmm. egyptian but he's moroccan and moroccan and, right so you know for me it was like before that i i grew up almost thinking that all gay men were white because that's all you saw in the culture right. um and i think that was something also that was very impactful about that tour and that era you know truth the whole thing vogue truth or dare blonde ambition is it wasn't it wasn't the kind of white gay culture that was available to people at that point it was really showing people another um kind of gay person that i thought i could be so it was it was huge i mean i remember that it's so funny like the things that stick in your memory from your childhood but that crew member you know doing the stereotypical gay voice and saying oh you mean slam really Stuck with me. And then he gave us four <laughs> tickets and, you know, four of us went again. And yeah, it was amazing. Did you like it better in New York or in Nice? Probably in Nice. I mean, it's hard because, of course, you know, I'm also one of the few people who got to see it with both hairdos. I mean, I, I got to see the ponytail and the... The curly. The curls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's... Um, I, I mean, the thing about Nice that was different, I mean, in New York, I went with my parents and that's like its own. I mean, they also took me to the Virgin tour and they're pretty amazing. I mean, my mom got me the sex book for God's sake. So, you know. So you were out to them at this point? No. God, no. Eight. No, I was, well. At the Virgin tour, right? Virgin was tour, I was first eight. one? Oh, yeah. I mean, you have to understand. I mean, the other thing is I came out to my parents when I was in my early to mid 20s i think i was 23 or did you oh no 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 (laughs) let me tell you persians do not get it one of the first things i said to my parents when they they didn't believe me when i came out to them and i said she bought you the sex book for christ's sake i know and but it goes it's so much worse i had a madonna room 
there was this little storage room in our house because we lived in the suburbs outside New York at that point. And I took all the suitcases out and put them in the basement and made it a Madonna room. And I remember coming out at 23 and when my parents didn't believe me, I'm like, you guys, I had a Madonna room. And I think this is actually in the book. And my mom was like, I thought you were in love right. with her. Yeah. yeah. And I and I did put that in the book because that was the logic mm-hmm. of of my parents. I mean, and I it kind of made sense to me. I was like, oh, wow. you have no, you know, you have to understand like they were raised in Iran and left after the revolution. Like they don't understand gay icons or right. gay culture. They don't, huh. they had no idea. Like we thought you wanted to marry her. Right. Yeah. Exactly. That's fascinating. So yeah. So it was a, it was a major summer. And then there was like the one day Madonna came to the hotel, um, <laughs> which you probably have, a, you know, a very different experience of, but in my experience, a friend of mine banged on my door being like, Madonna's in the lobby. And I Did ran, you ran down. down. Oh, Did you I ran down in your underwear. Yeah, You're like run. Yeah, I was in my underwear. <laughs> I was in my underwear. By the time I got down, she was already on her way to like the dock, and she was wearing like a white hoodie with sunglasses, and she was with Alec Kashishian. Mm-hmm. And I, I started like I had my camera, and I snapped these photos of her, which I still have, and I've never shown to anyone because oh for God. some reason they feel so personal and like yeah. they're my thing that's so sweet and um but the, this is the best part is that the one person for madonna was probably in the lobby for 30 seconds i think she sat right next to my aunt who could care less about madonna <laughs> and my aunt and this is now like family legend my aunt turned to madonna and said are you madonna and madonna apparently turned to her and said i wish i was madonna she's so beautiful and talented and successful she's a superstar and then she got up and she left the hotel i love it and that's yeah that's well, as close as i've gotten the summer it was yeah it was but that's what I mean. it's it was life changing yeah. it really was it was when i think about like for me and the book is so much about this my whole life has been about trying to figure out how to be both iranian cuz i'm very iranian and and queer and they didn't make sense when I was young. There were no examples. Even when I came out, there were so few visible people for me to talk to. Um, and I feel like when I think about that summer, it's the summer where I first started to see a path forward, you know? How did you find your footing, you know, after coming coming out? Because since you didn't have a lot of <clears throat> just sources to draw from, how did yeah. you find your footing God, I mean, it's so, it's, it took a long time. And I mean, it's something I feel like I've explained, like I go speak to a lot of um, teen, because the book is also, you know, it's for teens and up. Um, But when I speak to young people who I think don't fully understand some of them, unfortunately, some of them do, because they come from different communities, but many of them who come from more accepting communities don't understand like what it was like to come out back then, especially in a culture like mine. And so I, I, I explained to them that it's like you have to keep coming out over and over and over again. And I think that's what it was like for me. Like I almost felt like every time I would see my family, they had forgotten, you know what I mean? Or when I would like break up with a boyfriend, they would think, oh, well, that's done. And it's like the right. phase is over, you know, because they really... And now we have a really nice girl for you. Up exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, luck. I mean, luckily they weren't that. They weren't trying to set me up because, woo, that would not have gone well. It's like, but, girl. But it was hard. I mean, it was it was really hard, and I had a lot of you know. There's so many. It's such a deep question because there's so many issues involved in it. Like the my the whole reason I came out is because my first boyfriend in my who when I moved to L.A. 
um, I met and he was this dynamic, talented, like hyper successful, like successful, very young person. And when I was with him, I thought, my God, like, you know, we were the same age, but he had done so much more and he had so much more confidence and he was very much of an activist. And, and I really looked up to him and felt like he was so strong and he made me come out. I mean, in retrospect, it may not have been like the greatest move, but I really... I'm happy he did it. He gave me an ultimatum. He said, because we were going to move in together, and he said, I will not move in with you unless you come out to your parents. He said, I'm not, like, doing a fake voicemail. I'm not pretending to be your roommate. And and so I did it. I came out to them on the Persian New Year, um, <laughs> which was quite dramatic. And um, <laughs> But, like, the amazing thing looking back to that is um, he, he turned out to be an addict. I know. Um, that's something that you know you have gone through and like he didn't make it and it's so it's so funny for me to not funny it's so ironic for me to think back to that time and like how insecure I was and how I looked up to him as this force and how eventually the addiction took him and you know he's no longer with us but you know so I think about when I, when you say like how did you find your footing it's like there were so many times where I thought I found my footing and then something like losing him would happen. And I'm like, Oh wait, do I have my footing? Like I still, I don't know. I mean, Jonathan and I have talked about this a lot lately. Like we have many friends who we've all, all gay men for the most part who we've lost to addiction or suicide really recently. And most of them of our generation. And each time it feels really destabilizing and like, I don't know. I mean, I, I, at the end of the book, I, I go into this a little bit about how like, you know, when you hear something happen, you know, to, to the queer community, some kind, whether it's, you know, violence or suicide or addiction, it feels almost like a re-traumatization because it's like you're brought right back to that young person who felt like you wouldn't make it. And that's hard, but I don't know. This has gotten very serious. I, <laughs> I, uh, I don't know. I mean, writing, honestly, for me, it's, it's writing was the biggest thing. Like if it weren't, you know, when I wrote my first book, there were no books or movies or anything I could point to with an Iranian gay man. And that right. was my first book was the first book with a main character who was an Iranian gay man. And it was almost like I was writing myself into existence. And the books gave me a chance to talk to my own community um, in a different way because it opened a conversation. I think fiction, it's easier for people to look at a fictional character. Yeah. Right. Right. And so... So I think that helped a lot. And then that gave me the confidence to then say, well, I can integrate the different parts of myself on one in one book, in one page. Then and I can. How old were you when you wrote the first book? I think I was almost 30. Yeah. And I had been writing movies for a while before then, but the movies tended to be less autobiographical. Right. Um, and well, you actually wrote three novels. And the first yeah. one was called The Walk-In Closet, That's which right. won the Lambda Literary Award for LGBT. T debut fiction. <laughs> it did. It did. Yeah. That was very cool. <laughs> it was very cool. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. So I think that that helped a lot. I mean, writing, I do think creativity is very powerful in that way that it helps us define ourselves. Um, and it helps us heal ourselves. And then, you know, and then I got to like be who I want to be and just say, fuck it. Like I want to have a family and right. I want to, were you screen? You were screenwriting before you yeah. uh, wrote your novels. Yeah. Tell us about how you got your first screenwriting gig. 
Um, so I moved here from New York. I was, I was in New York and I had done a lot of different odd jobs and internships there. But my last internship was at a company for the filmmaker, Alan Pakula, who mm. is amazing. And Good one. Yeah. He's pretty incredible. He was always in his office working on, I believe, an FDR movie and which obviously will never get made sadly. But, um, but my boss at the time had told me, you just need to move to LA and so did you want to be a screenwriter at that point? I, I, I wanted to be in film. You know, it's funny right. when you're young, I think you don't really even understand what the different jobs are. You know, like you see a movie mm-hmm. and there's 7,000 people credited and you're like, yeah. who are all these people? Yeah. And now I actually best boy know. Do. Yeah. Like, what do they all do? Right. Um, What's a grip? Right. Exactly. It's so, but so I, I knew I, I always loved writing, but I honestly like, again, because of the kind of culture I, I came from creativity wasn't necessarily the thing that was uh, prized or yeah. <laughs> right. Like, so like I you going to law school or medical school. Exactly. Which one is and by be? the way, I eventually went to business school. I have an MBA. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I do. It's like, like here so you go, people, mom and dad. When people hear I have an MBA, they're so confused. They're like what? <laughs> um, but I, uh, you know, so I moved here thinking I would be in film, but probably more on like, I don't know. I didn't even know what. I was like, I'll be on the business side. Right. I'll be in an office right. somewhere. I just needed to be. I loved movies. I loved Hollywood. I loved all of the, you know, the artifice and the glamour and all that. And It's interesting you say that because Kevin Stay, when we interviewed him for the show, felt the same way that he wanted to be in Hollywood doing something in Hollywood, but he always thought that it would be, you know, on the business side as really well. mm-hmm. oh that's so interesting yeah and then he became a dancer yeah but i very think... late yeah very late. really mm-hmm. yeah he started dancing since he was like 18 wow oh god that is late i guess yeah. for dancing Ooh. yeah that's <laughs> tough when did you start dancing oh my god i was i started dancing in the fourth grade wow mm-hmm. wow yeah, because I was always dancing in front of the television, watching Solid Gold. So of my mom, oh, were. that's amazing. <laughs> so my mother was like, "I need you to get from in front of the television, and we're gonna that's... put you in this class so you can, you know, get out all this energy." I love that because you know I was vibrating yeah. all over the house. Yeah, it's like I'm but trying to watch my so... stories, and you over here. That's well, so I'm great. just trying to cook and run this house, <laughs> yeah. and you, right? You know, in your underwear, all. Ah! But that's so wonderful because I do think in in a lot of cases, like the essence of people is there when they're young. And I did. Oh, I mean, yeah. I wrote stories. I have so many memories about writing, especially like I would because I loved Archie's. I would write comics and I would write poems. But I don't think my parents really viewed that as a viable career. Oh no, career. It's just like you said, that's something to do. Yeah, yeah. that's cool. Now. Get, now know, go get, you get, know, yeah. Yeah, now go, go get, get your get business the MBA. degree. You exactly. Get, get that map book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now go learn how to make a spreadsheet. Yeah. <laughs> Use Excel. Um, but yeah, so then I moved here. So I was an assistant for two years. I worked at a diff- two different companies for his TV movie producer. And then I worked for um, um, Edmonds Entertainment, which was really cool. And then... Um, and at that point, I had my primary job as an assistant, other than answering phones, was reading scripts. Because, of course, nobody reads in Hollywood, as, oh, no. you know, as you guys probably know. And obviously, yeah. Louis Camacho does. And Louis. Read. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, yeah, they pay somebody to do it. Yeah. And then I had this friend who was getting his playwriting um, MFA at that point, who was living in San Francisco. And we were in very close touch. And I was reading, like, I don't know, 20 scripts a week. And, and at one point, I just wrote to him. And I was like, I feel like we could do this like um and so we just kind of start 
Yeah, together. So we were emailing this. We had this idea of a script based on our college years and our college friends, and we were emailing back and forth. And then I went to San Francisco and we wrote it in one weekend in San Francisco. It was crazy. That's awesome. Yeah. And then that script got us um, a man. I had a friend who, a high school friend who was an actress who actually does the audiobook. If someone is interested in the audiobook, she does the audiobook. Um, of like a love story, she reads the female part, which is the, very the Judy part. Mean, yeah, the Judy yeah. part, which is very meaningful to me since Ugh, she's I you know my teenage you. best friend. But um, but she had a manager and gave the script to the manager. It was a very kind of lucky thing, and the manager wanted to sign us and was like, "You need another script before I'll do that." And so we scrambled and wrote a second script. And then the very first job we had was writing a one of those like teen adaptations of a Shakespeare play. It was Two Gentlemen of Verona which I don't think anyone at the studio had read because it's like culminates in like the main characters raping somebody. And we were like, are you sure that this is what you want to adapt? Um, And then we didn't understand the industry at all. Like we thought they wanted some like crazy creative, you know, I don't know, like, Pedro Almodovar type movie and they wanted like she's all that you know we can really put our stamp on this exactly so it was it was a learning curve it was a learning curve but I will say on that first movie I remember we like our our initial and this was way before gay marriage was a big thing in the in the culture like our initial script that we turned in ended I think it was in a quadruple marriage like it was like two straight couples a gay couple and a lesbian couple oh you guys really went in oh we went in (laughs) and um I believe one of the notes that came back I can't remember from who was cut all the gay characters oh yeah (laughs) and that was yeah but you know I was gonna say that was okay to say back then but now I think like some of the stuff I still hear in Hollywood like it's you hear some hard stuff when you get notes you know the thing about screenwriting for me that was most um I mean I love it I still do it and I've gotten I think a little more um I don't know what the right word is purposeful about it Mm -hmm. where I think I've managed to find a better balance in terms of you know projects that mean something to me and but but back then when I was starting out and you're just kind of doing whatever people throw at you because you're desperate for work. Yeah. And um, you're just doing writer for hire. They were you're just doing writer write for script. hire. Right. And it was like, usually what would happen is you write some really personal script. You know, I did write, like I have one script that I loved that was about two Iranian teenagers it was inspired by a true story who were executed in Iran. And it was always a script that people thought was the best, you know, people would read it and be like, this is so incredible. And then it would like get me hired to write some, other script about white people you know that was not gay and it's like well wait why don't you just make the one you love like yeah you (laughs) know we're gonna do this rom-com right exactly so that that was a little bit of my experience and and still to some extent that holds although I'm trying I'm trying very hard to get this book made as a movie um and and get projects that mean more to me but but it's hard Hollywood has a lot more barriers to entry and you hear you know just hard offensive feedback about well, oh, we can't, yeah. you know, you can't cast, you can't make this movie because there are no Iranian stars, but there'll never be an Iranian star because you'll never make an Iranian movie. It's just this circular thing where. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even yeah. gay characters. I mean, you made a movie that's kind of amazing that got made, which is. Um, <laughs> which, um, I, call I, me by your name. Oh, yes, call me by I your name. Say, which, Jesus. which is yes, one of my favorite. Did you love it? Oh, I love oh, that, that movie. Amazing. And you were movie. an executive. I was an producer. associate producer. Yeah, I worked. Well, one of the nice things after I got my MBA, when around the time I had the kids, I completely panicked. It was there was there were a lot. You know, any creative career 
has huge ups and downs. And oh, yeah. I had my career was very I was very lucky in the beginning um, and worked a lot. And then there was a writer's strike and a recession and the whole industry kind of restructured. And suddenly I had a couple years that were really, really bad. And it was a rude awakening. And it was around the time I was having kids. And so I panicked and, you know, my the voice of my parents finally spoke through me. And I was right. like, I'm going to get an MBA. <laughs> um, and I was completely ready to do it. I mean, I was like, I, I actually made it through the program, which I'm still shocked because, my God, that was hard. I I, mean, oh, um, my God. To. to be a writer for a decade and then suddenly be in an advanced finance class. Yikes. But um. But I, but I just knew that I had to make a living. But the, but the amazing thing is the MBA helped me pivot. I still wrote, but one thing that I did is I started producing more, and um, I started. I headed up development for a production company that was incredible, is incredible, and um, puts money behind a lot of the kinds of films that I wish there were more of. And you know, young filmmakers, diverse filmmakers, female filmmakers, and one of those movies was Call Me by Your Name. So, how was that yeah. experience? I didn't, I mean, to be honest, and I think this, oh God, I still kick myself about this because we were debating going on set for Call Me By Your Name and we didn't. So I'm always like, why did we not go? But it was one of those things where it's like, you have to fly. How do you, you not know, go on set when Army Hammer is I, there? I, I mean, I know, <laughs> I know. I, I look back talk, on bro. it. <laughs> but you know what? Army when you're in, But when Hammer. you're in Los Angeles and you're busy and you have kids and they're like, okay, so to get there, you no, have to yes. go like, from LA to London to Milan, then drive to this little town up in the north, and then I would have been like, okay, yeah. Sure. I, I mean, in no, retrospect, come on, kids, we're going. But you to also Italy. have to understand, like before You'll that, meet your Uncle Army. I know, but I yes, I know Army. Well, I've been lucky enough to. I think the first time I met Army was when the film premiered at Sundance, and I do believe I embarrassed myself completely. Well, you can. I, I, I was so. I mean, I was just like. No, because my jaw was on. Let me tell y'all on screen is one thing. I saw him at a screening of, um, what was the movie? Oh, the, um, Nate, uh, Nat Turner, the Nat Turner movie. Was it the remake? Birth of a nation. No, No. wait, the Nat Turner story that, what was it called? Oh, anyway, he was in it. It was a screening at Fox and he was like outside afterwards. And it was just like, no, this doesn't make sense. It, it doesn't make well, sense. This doesn't make sense in the universe. Doesn't make sense, but you know, he also comes from a very wealthy. He does, which is so unfair. Yeah, so, he's like, you know, Jesus. He looks like that. He's got all the he's, things. So, yeah. Very so, wealthy and, so, you, know, you know, has talent. You would expect him to look like that because you know that breed no of, not really this is something altogether because of the you money think, come on that's one of my favorite lines from truth or dare what does she say it's like jewelry doesn't make people look beautiful money makes people look beautiful <laughs> what i know i can quote truth or dare do you know by the way my last <laughs> let me tell you something i i work i also work in like tv writers rooms which is a whole other thing yeah. and the last writers room i was in you have these meetings with a showrunner and it was like a showrunner and one of the executives and i didn't even bring madonna up at some point we were talking about i don't know what and the showrunner said something that was from truth or dare and i was like wait are you quoting truth or dare and she's like i had to make my assistant watch it because i quote it so often <laughs> that <laughs> that i had to make that he had to know what i was talking about and then the entire Higher meeting turned into us talking about truth or dare, <laughs> and I swear that's she why I got the that job. She has that power. 
she does. But I got then I got the job. I called my agents and I'm like, I think I might get this job because of Madonna. Yes. <laughs> like, I think. Yeah. And, and she's and like, no, we're going to have to work so we can quote. Just Truth so we dare. can quote <laughs> Truth or Dare. Yeah. Back and forth. Yeah. But it's such a quotable movie. I mean, my God. Oh, yeah. Bobby Brown got a rest of the fucking I'll say. That's my favorite line. Which one of you is the one who said very Janet Jackson Rhythm Nation? That was you. Yeah. That was me. Oh, that's one of my favorite <laughs> lines. Very yeah. Janet, Janet Jackson, Jackson Rhythm, Rhythm Nation. Nation. Lewis oh, has quite a few yes. in the film. <laughs> oh, God. He has quite a few. Oh. <laughs> when we were in Paris and they see, we see the, the couple getting married at the fountain. <laughs> He's like, don't do it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> don't do it. <laughs> oh, I love it. These two. I, oh, oh yeah, you, know I mean? you guys were. I mean, magic. Just acting magic, up. and strike a pose. By the way, is so moving. Oh, thank you. Thank I mean, you. they did a but great job. They did a. They, they, they did, did a beautiful job. job. Really it's beautiful. beautiful. I mean, I I cried a lot watching it. It's so moving. It's so moving because for anyone who had a meaningful experience with Truth or Dare, which really is a whole generation of people. To know, especially because Truth or Dare was so much about like truth, right? It was right. so much about like to know that the whole truth just wasn't there and that there was this whole other story happening was, yeah, it was oh. very layered. And to see them all the come together, because you know, when you have any movie or you see a group of people and you imagine that everybody's all like, ah, you're over for dinner Friday night, and you just don't, people go their separate ways and they have their yeah. lives. Yeah. Then to see you all like walk out on the balcony. Like, <laughs> oh God, it's so beautiful when you so walk good. out on the balcony. My God. Yeah. Yeah. But you are an author of three novels. You are a screenwriter, uh, a producer in Hollywood, and you're also a dad. Yes. Now, multi hyphenate. Yes. <laughs> but here's the interesting part. You wanted to be, and I, and I know guys listening out there, I know there are people who love children and want to do it whether they're with a partner or not. Abdi wanted to do it regardless. Like he wanted yeah. kids. Yeah. And it didn't matter if he was with a partner or without a partner. Tell us about that. Call, I mean, I feel the like calling. It's a calling, calling. To have I children. think I did. I did, and I don't. I mean, did you always want to have kids? I did. Yeah. yeah, it was always something. I remember even when I was pretty young, talking about wanting to have kids. I was definitely, and now I think back, and I think it's such a silly thing. But I was definitely one of those gay men who talked about having kids with my female friends. You know, right? Yeah. Like if we don't meet anyone by the time we're thirty. It was like a Jennifer Aniston movie, you know? Yeah. And um, there was, I mean, I did love that movie. And I, at one point I remember, oh, this tells you so much about Iranian culture, but me and my closest female cousin went to my grandmother and we were like, it looks like neither of us is ever going to be in a serious relationship. So we're thinking of adopting a baby and just raising it together. And my grandmother was like, well, if you like each other so much, why wouldn't you just get married and have a baby together? <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. First cousins, first cousins, see Iran, you know? Um, it's yeah. like grandma was not the first. <clears throat> grandma. <laughs> I, wish that was un- yeah. I wish that was unusual. But, yeah. um, but I did. I mean, I think one of the things that was very hard for me coming out was that I didn't see a path forward for having kids and I knew 
I don't know. I just knew that that's something I wanted. And I, I struggled a lot with kind of finding a place within the gay community that felt like it was me. Um, and eventually I got to a point where I decided to do it alone. And the first path that I pursued was adoption. And um, I think adoption is one of those things that a lot of people who don't, who've never kind of investigated the process have a lot of misconceptions about thinking like, oh, well, there are so many children who need homes in the world. It must be easy, but it's actually quite difficult, especially when you're a single gay man. And right. the adoption agency I was working with, which was, you know, a national agency had at that point never worked with a single gay man. And they were, you know, they were skeptical of their ability to place, you know, a child with me. And a lot of times what will happen is, you know, they'll, they'll start working with the birth mom and the birth mom will meet different prospective parents. And so the agency was like, we just don't know. We, you know, we don't want to lie to you and say that like, they're going to pick you over a two parent home or, you know, and there were, I will say, you know, even from close friends and family members, a lot of people who just didn't understand. I think there's a lot of skepticism about why a man would want to have a kid. It's almost like men aren't supposed to want parenthood the same way women are. It's like, a lot of times when I would talk about wanting to have kids, people would just be like, why? <laughs> I'm like, well... Wait, by yourself? <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I don't know because I want to be a parent because that's what I see as my role. I mean, I don't... It's hard to put a finger on why. It's just something you feel, right? You either feel it or I suppose you don't. Um, but I eventually... I mean, it's a long process, but eventually... Uh, a lesbian friend of mine had offered to be my surrogate and after a couple tries that didn't work but then um, at that point we'd been working with a doctor and I had frozen sperm there and so I started to investigate surrogacy and then that's the route I ended up going and now I have beautiful twins and um, yeah and then met my husband when they were three and so he took on a whole family he did. And he was, you know, I mean, that would, that's a whole other thing. I mean, you know, Jonathan, so I, I don't know how well, you know, but he really, I mean, he is as type a and, and driven as they come. And I think when I met him, he no, was so, all, Jonathan. no, he was, he was very all in on, on, you know, on the relationship. And I, I remember in the beginning being like, is, this is almost too good to be true. Cause before that, you know, I had a couple years of being single with the kids and dating, in the gay community with young kids is real hard and gay men for the most part are not looking to get into a relationship. And at that point the kids were so young, you know, it's like they're not looking to get in a relationship with a a man and his twin toddlers. Right. (laughs) And, and I had so many weird, I mean, like I remember I was on all the dating websites and I, I, you know, I would, the whole profile was about my kids. And then I would go on a date and they'd be like, Oh, we thought they were dogs. You know, no. or like, I'm like, no, 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 they're children. Yeah, they're, they're human children. <laughs> oh my goodness, that's so crazy. It's crazy. But Jonathan was just so amazing. And, and you know, we were just reminiscing about this recently because it was Valentine's Day. And the first time he met them, he had, it, we know, we went through this whole dance of like, when does he meet the kids? And, and he ended up meeting them very soon after because he brought a big bouquet of flowers for me on Valentine's Day and two little bouquets for the kids. And oh, I was just well, like, there you, um, I know on. I was like, just come meet them. <laughs> and, um, and the, the amazing thing is it went so well and it just fit, you know, and very soon after that he moved in very quickly. And our attitude was always like, I'm very much someone who like w- wants to be home with the kids most nights. And I tend most of my social life is my friends hanging out with us and the kids. So, 
I we realized very early that he was either going to be integrated into into the kids or not, and and it just worked. So, yeah, yeah, he got a. Oh, it's like a love a story. Family. It is like a love story. <laughs> I know the book is dedicated to him. Oh, I it know. is. I, it's funny because I, I, yeah, I think a lot about like why I wrote this book now after all these years, and like because I do, I did want to write about that time period forever. I always knew it was the time period that meant the most to me emotionally, um, and and I think in a lot of ways it's just that like the book is so vulnerable and my heart is more open now because of you know Jonathan and and the kids. I so. think that's why. I just loved the book so much because I honestly feel that there's so much of just your personal story in the book, you know, with Reza also wanting to be a dad. Yeah. And, you know, him coming up to his parents and he also has an older brother. And it was just like, oh, my goodness, it's almost autobiography. It's almost. almost Yeah. I love like graphical. It's almost autobiographical. I love fiction personally because it allows you to process things without having to be literal. Like otherwise, like I feel like if I wrote autobiograph, I don't know, a truly autobiographical novel, it would just be like a long therapy session. And right. I had quite a bit of that in my life. <laughs> but um, I, there's something. But yes, it it is almost autobiographical. And yeah, I mean, I, I put that. I, it's funny because that's one of those things I remember someone saying to me when I was young. There's a scene where the kind of gay mentor character, who I think, you know, well, actually, there's two gay mentors, and they're giving they're giving the two young gay teens the sex talk I wish I had when I was young. The kind of like non shaming, um, you know fact-based sex talk none of us had back then right um but one of the things that he says and it's a real slip-up is he says to the gay teens like well the good news is you can't get someone pregnant and for reza that lands in this really dark way and he's like how is that good news like i want to be a dad like what do i do you know Uh, and it's just it's something i remember hearing when i was young and and gay and it's like oh well that's not good news for some of us right you know so yeah. It just goes to show you, honey, we come in all shapes and sizes and forms. And <laughs> yes, we do. Morals and yeah. you know, ideas and I don't know. It's just awesome. I love yeah. the book, too, like because it's so much of our formative, you know, it's our time, you know, growing up. Yeah. All the references, you know. Madonna, Janet, Col- oh took Boy George, and God. Culture Club, and <laughs> did you guys know each other back then? We no? knew no. each other right after um, the whole hoopla. Yes, we we met a, we we met each other after tour after the tour after twenty one yeah. yeah around yeah. that time she's been Framily ever since Framily yeah I was going Framily. to New York a lot with. Our mutual friend Eddie, who was also an extravaganza, who had moved out here to L.A., and they—I was working at a production company, and they uh, got to know them. And one of the first things that they said to me, his partner at the time was my friend Jim, his boyfriend, and he was like, "We're gonna take you to Sound Factory." And I was uh. like, "Okay." I was like, eh, "You know, whatever, another club, you know, L.A. Okay, all right, Sound Factory is cool." <laughs> oh, and I remember walking like, in there like, like Sound Factory in New York. <laughs> Sound Factory. Yeah, okay. Wow. I mean, yeah. Sound Factory was 
Amazing. Incredible. Just you feel it first. Well, was right? it was it the Junior there? Vasquez days? It I was the Junior Vasquez yeah, days. Yeah, I mean Junior Vasquez. I had I had nights dancing to Junior Vasquez that you, you felt like you were floating. I oh mean, yeah. It was, my God, like you get you kept like wanting to leave and then just being pulled back into the dance floor and. Well, they oh, made yeah. it an experience. Yeah. He took you on a journey. It was the lighting. It was sometimes yeah. there was moments when the, it would go totally black. I like, know. I remember, I remember. Strobe Light Honey came up. They would play the remix of Strobe Light, and it was like, "Don't go, don't." It would get yes. really, really. Oh the God, lights would yes. go down. And all I of a sudden, it'd be like, Duh. "It would just." I the remember whole place that. Would go up. It was incredible. It was bonkers, and that was happening literally at seven in the morning. Yeah. Wow. Like, and you would walk out. Like, <laughs> you walk oh, out uh, to like. Uh, People having light. brunch and I, their I know. Well, I was in co- I was in college in in New York, and that's what we would do. We would go dancing until oh seven God. or ten. We would go straight to class. We'd just be like, <laughs> it's like fuck it, we're it up. was incredible. And there was all the good, you know, all the great clubs were happening at that. It was, time. and it was, it was like a real sense 90s. of yeah. It was. I was there. I was in college there from ninety four to ninety eight. So I feel like I got there at the real tail end of it. Yeah. Because the summer of my freshman year is when Michael Alec killed Angel. Okay. Yes. Who you know, and we all ended up meeting all those people at some point wow. in, in my freshman year like angel dated a girl who lived in my dorm um briefly i mean not that long but long enough that we had met him and right. he, we would go to michael alex parties and for for me it was very much like this fantasy world where like you know all the stuff that i loved it was to me it was almost like the old hollywood system where people were creating these star personas and being oh, whoever yeah. they wanted it felt so liberating but then when the murder happened it just revealed the darkness underneath so much of it. Yeah. And everything and, started closing. They really started yeah. cracking down. Giuliani, Giuliani came yes, into Giuliani power. Came, <laughs> everything went away. And I don't yeah. know. I mean, I hope that, I don't know. Now I go to bed at like now, um, <laughs> yeah. at 8 PM, but I, uh, I don't, I hope that young people have that kind of sense of community. And I don't know. Technology has changed things so much. I don't pretend to know what happens at night anymore, but I just know that like, despite all the, bad stuff that happened there's something magical that can happen when you find a community like that that you dance with and a sense of belonging and power you know i hope that still exists well i once again just loved 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 your novel i loved it so much thank you tore through it like i mean like, you know, when you eat that first cookie and you haven't had sugar in a while and that first <laughs> cookie is like the best cookie you ever had. That's how the novel was for me. And I just appreciate you. I appreciate you coming on and talking to us on the show. And I just love the connection with the Madonna and the whole thing and, you know, you incorporating it into the book. I love how much of you is in the book. Um, and I just... I just really love the bittersweet ending as well. I won't give it away. Don't, no spoilers. No spoilers. Up in here. But you guys listening, you you should really pick up this book. It's so great. It's called Like a Love Story. The author is our new friend, Abdi <laughs> Nazaman. And particularly and if you have a young person yeah. in your life, a yes. teenager, you know, they. it's definitely yeah. a book that yes. they should read. Yeah. Well, I just, I just want to say, I mean, I wrote, you know, the characters go to the Blonde Ambition tour and it's one of the most pivotal scenes of the book. And there are multiple references to the dancers um, and to the magic. And I think, I mean, wait, can I read just a little thing? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. 
and while you're reaching into your cute little bag there, um, I did get mad at Reza at one point. Oh, did you? Yes. Why did you get like, mad at him? I mean, he is very frustrating. I was, I was frustrating like, back at then. At one point, I was like, oh, my God, girl, get over it. <laughs> yeah. Well, but, but can then I, I tell you, the though? Ba- but then I turned the page. I was like, no, I really love you, actually. Well, you know, but you know, <laughs> the struggling. thing is, you know, yes, the thing is, struggling. you're not the first person to say that. And what I want to say is that if you felt that way about Reza, imagine how you would feel about me who didn't get over it till I was in my mid 20s. <laughs> <Yeah>. I mean, <laughs> Reza at least gets over it when he's still a teenager. Right. I held on to that fear. Well, there, way there's just a moment where, yeah. you know, it's just like he's scared. He's scared because he was, it felt like he was driven by this fear of what he was, you know, what he might or might not get. I won't reveal too much. But after a while, it's just like, ah, do it. He's right there. Just I know. But you know, you know, and it's so funny that you say that because so many people have that response. And in the original draft of this book, I I think this part we can give away. I mean, the book deals with AIDS and the Reza character is is dealing with a lot of fear and shame because he doesn't have he's he's because he doesn't have any examples of people to to help him accept it or educate himself all he all he knows is the fear and in the original draft the two characters never have sex um and my editor who's a straight female really pushed me to write a sex scene and i said to her like well i don't think it's realistic because this character is based on me and i didn't have sex until i was much older i mean we don't need to go into it, but but I mean the fear was <laughs> no, the fear okay. was so strong, and um, and I think what finally convinced me is that I didn't have art when I was his age. So then I realized, yeah, well, okay, right. I didn't meet someone like that until I was much older, and when I did, I did find the courage. So I'm just giving him an experience that I had uh, later, so but um, so but yeah, yeah, for people so reading good. who young people who might be reading at this time who might have that same feeling may not understand just that at the time how present it was in all our lives being so young and seeing people literally dying people in their 20s right our friends being sick and in and out of the hospital and it was very yeah immediate and i think and i think also the the thing that some sometimes i think we we talk more about the generation on the front lines which is with good reason because they're the ones who both suffered the most and fought the most but I think what the book deals with a lot is the generation that was just coming of age, hitting puberty, hitting consciousness when it was at its worst and when the messaging was so strong in the culture so that the, you know, I think the, all I knew, like I don't have any memories of a pre-AIDS world. Like when I realized I was gay, it was at its worst. When I, you know, started to date and started having sex, it was at its worst. And and the messaging was so aggressive and if you didn't have positive gay role models to kind of tell you something different, you were just living in that fear because that's what society wanted you to do to protect yourself, right? I think for a lot of gay men of my generation, we're still grappling with, you know, getting rid of that fear. It's still, even though it's the logical part of your brain um, can get over it, the the emotional part that's still kind of stuck in in it is there. Yeah, but anyway, so I just had to read, I mean, I, I was looking at the book because for me, I mean, it means so much to me to be here. It means so much to me to hear you say you love the book. But I mean, really, for me, it's you're you're in the book. And so to be here, it's just so moving. And I had to at least read this little part. So this is where the characters are attending the Blonde Ambition Tour. And it's Reza speaking because it, it's told in multiple perspectives. But this is Reza. And he says, um, 
I feel it all in the two hours that Madonna graces us with her presence, joy and pride and love and fear and anger and passion, and one emotion I never thought I would feel, faith. Yes, faith, because if the world could bring together this woman with these songs and these dancers in this place with me in it, then creation must be more powerful than destruction. Oh. And I just, I don't know. I just feel like for me to write that right. and then to be sitting here with you is just really meaningful to me. And yeah. We got to go. Because <laughs> I'm about to break down in tears. So I, I can't no more. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you, guys. Thank, Thank you, Abdi. Thank you. Thank you, Abdi, so much for coming on. Oh, it was Buy so his fun. book. Yeah, it's a great book. It's on Amazon, right? It's, it's everywhere on, books it's are sold. Everywhere you can books go to your are local bookstore too. Bookstore. Go to your yes. local bookstore. Buy lots of books. Yes. <laughs> Especially mine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you guys. Thank you so much. <laughs>